the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Broken Icy Hearts of Comets and the lead-eating zombies expelled from a Nevada rare earth mine for bad breath and worse manners. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we continue our interview with John Ringo, Casey Ezell, and Christopher L. Smith talking about their new book, Gunpowder and Embers, a great new post-apocalypse sort of Western martial arts adventure novel. It's really good stuff. Also sitting in on the interview is Bain publisher Tony Weiskopf. This is part two and the conclusion of a most excellent two-part interview, so that's coming up. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we continue our interview with John Ringo, Casey Ezell, and Christopher L. Smith talking about their new book, Gunpowder and Embers, a great new post-apocalypse sort of Western martial arts adventure novel. It's really good stuff. Also sitting in on the interview is Bain publisher Tony Weiskopf. This is part two and the conclusion of a most excellent two-part interview, so that's coming up. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. We have some excellent free fiction at the Bain.com website right now. This is The Red Sea by Mercedes Lackey and Cody Martin. The story is set in the world of their upcoming novel, Breaking Silence, which is the sequel to last year's book, Silence, by the way, and it all takes place in a small town in Maine beset by some rather dark forces, maybe having to do with dark elves. But our heroes are pushing back, and we put up this free fiction to give you a taste of the world of the books and just to give you some great stories to read, and this is one of them. At sea, when Wanda is left behind in Silence, Maine, while her friends are enjoying the weekend of camping and LARPing, the young guy thinks her weekend is going to suck. Instead of playing D&D, she's walking along a lonely stretch of beach, all alone. Or at least she thought she was all alone, but there are some strange things lurking under the surface of Silence. And the waters off its coast may be haunted with things. Find the Red Sea by Mercedes Lackey and Cody Martin at Bain.com right there on the front page. It'll stay available online on its own web page, but when it comes off the front page, you can also download it in our free ebook collection from Bain eBooks called Free Stories 2020. You can get that from the website, and it is available in perpetuity. So check that story out. You won't be sorry. This is part two of a two-part interview. Part one is available on last week's podcast.
want to welcome John Ringo, Casey Ezel, Christopher L. Smith, and hey, Tony Weiskopf, Bain Publisher, is here as well. Welcome all to the podcast. Hello, folks. Thank you hey, for Rick. having us. Mary, yeah, yeah, thank you very much. Well, let me uh, introduce everyone. John Ringo, Tony Weiskopf, the publisher here at Bain. Um, Boss Lady. John Ringo is the creator of the Posseline War series, the New York Times bestselling series with over a million copies in print. It contains a hymn before battle, Gus Front, when the devil dances, and a lot of other books written by John Alon. More books was uh, in the series, co-authored with uh, Michael Z. Williamson, Tom Crapman, and Julie Cochran. John has penned the Council War series. He created the national best-selling military adventure. This is going to take the entire podcast. Hi, I'm John Ringo, and you're not. Moving on. I mean, when you get into the anthologies, when you get into the spinoffs, when you get into the collaborations, uh, I mean, I don't know. I, and Tony, do you know how many books there are? Because I've been trying to count for years, and I keep coming up with different numbers. I mean, it's like at 56, 58. I, I think it's one, two, three, many at this point, John. Yeah. <laughs> well, like Kevin Costner says in Dances with Wolf, they are like the stars. <laughs> um, all right, all right. We'll skip all that crap. Um, <laughs> he is the author of the Black Tide Rising series recently and the Monster Hunter Memoirs uh, series with Larry Correa. Um, and he's a veteran at the 82nd Airborne and uh, knows a lot about Army crap. Um, <laughs> Casey Zell knows a lot about Air Force crap because she is a USAF Air, a helicopter pilot who writes science fiction, fantasy, alt history, and horror fiction. Her first novel was a Dragon Award finalist in 2018, and her stories have been featured in Bainshear's Best Military and Adventure Science Fiction Compilation, and she won one of those as, uh, as the best story of the year um, in 2018. So, and, so that's good, and she's just been popping up all over the place. She's an up-and-coming, uh, great new writer that, that we're happy to support, as is Christopher L. Smith, um, who is not a native Texan by birth, but um, feels like that's his home. As soon as he, he, he could get there, he went there. Um, he, he met a wonderful lady who found him to be funny, charming, and worth marrying, and he began writing fiction. His short stories can be found in anthologies like the Black Tide Rising Anthology, Forged in Blood, and The Good, the Bad, and the Merc, among others. He's co-written two novels. A solo urban fantasy novel is currently under construction. Wait a minute. Uh, no, that's not this one. <laughs> his, his cats allow his family and three dogs to reside with him out with them outside of San Antonio. And now at booksellers everywhere is Gunpowder and Embers by John Ringo, Casey Ezel, and Christopher L. Smith. All right. Why why are there dragons? <laughs> and and maybe talk about Jasmine's uh and and the her her growing up with this horrible Lord Schilling. Uh, there are dragons um, there are because, dragons because John I is very kind to me. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I John is I my friend and John knows I that I, I love dragons. I dragons originally, didn't I? I had dragons uh, originally. You did, but they weren't, you... they, were, they weren't an integral part of the story um, as, as, initially, as you initially described it to us. You're... Um, you let me bring in a dragon tamer because I love dragons so much. <laughs> so. True, true. I think uh, originally they I were much smaller, things. and we kind of played yeah. with it a little bit to get them bigger. Yeah. 
And this also let us put a dragon on the cover. So. <laughs> right. Yes. That right. was yeah. the real reason yeah. I, I love did the it. Cover, by the way. Tony, that was exactly the reason. It was all, honest to God, the dragons were all marketing. People are not very interested <laughs> in insects. I'm interested in insects. Dave Freer is interested in insects. Nobody else is interested in insects. Okay. We are the only two people yeah. in the world who give a damn about insects. All right. Um, well, but everybody loves dragons. And the occasional entomologist. Well, Kathy, I went. <laughs> right. Sorry. Ka- Kathy and the Smith occasional is entomologist. Kathy Smith. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Kathy Smith is pretty into them. Um, <laughs> but uh, but in general, people just aren't that into insects. So I went. Well, it needs something else. So I'll throw in dragons. I, I, I'd like Chris to talk about the uh, the cover uh, the scene that that uh, the, that the cover illustration illustrates. Uh, can can you explain that one? Well, it's a stealth mission, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> it's been kind of fun since I since we uh, since we saw the cover reveal at LibertyCon last year. That that has kind of become a an inside joke hashtag with the friends, the group of friends that I have is the stealth mission hashtag. It's it's still stealth if everyone's dead, um, you know. Various <laughs> players on that, but um, yeah, the the death of Suleimani was a stealth mission, uh, <laughs> right? Exactly. That, that's our death he never knew it was coming, mission. and no one knew. Yeah, and everybody who needed to know it was coming didn't find out until too late. <laughs> yeah, that's if, our death uh, if no one can stealth. report you, it's still stealthy. <laughs> So there's a um. there's a scene in the book where um the characters have to um you know, they they come upon a conflict in progress and um they really that like the conflict has very little to do with them it's just it's in the way and they've got to get through it um and um during the course of that conflict um Jasmine um who is the the dragon tamer character um and she's um you know she she has this dragon character uh Quetzalith that you know is is her companion um and she finds out that in the course of this conflict um as is often the case um some innocent kids get hurt and that pisses her off and when she gets pissed off things burn and so um they're you know they're they're tiny little quiet let's slip across the river and you know, hey, well, keep our business. You know, right keep keep here. our minds on our own business. Avoid any becomes problem. a conflagration. <laughs> not burn the town. You know, and I kept time. thinking. <laughs> Definitely not burn the town. I kept thinking when Mister Bigglesworth gets angry, people die. When I'm reading this, right? And, uh, Casey, had, you know, Casey and I were sitting there putting it together. I'm just giggling because it totally reminded me of Doctor Evil, and I could just see Jasmine's yeah. look on her face, like. Right. Okay. That is what's going to happen now. And just kind of stalks over, mm-hmm. walks out, raises her fist, calls down fire, and then comes back and looks at the guys like, what? <laughs> well, and um, and it, it all goes which, back to that concept of Jasmine as, you know, she's the, um, she's she's ruled by instinct, right? She's ruled by this is wrong. Yeah. This feels oh, totally. fundamentally wrong in my gut, and I'm going to do what I have to do to redress it. Um, and in her mind, dead is redressed. So. So there you have it. Um, she oh, yeah, uh, totally different character. There was perfect. Yeah. Um, you know she's she's her. Yeah. I don't know where I was going with that. 
<laughs> One of the things I'd like to talk about, can you pronounce the name of the dragon again? Sure. It's, and, and I deliberately put it in the text so people would know. <laughs> it's Ketzalith, so like Ket, Za, like pizza, and then Lith, like lithograph. <laughs> okay. Ketzalith. I've never known how to pronounce like speaking with a Lith. Um, um, <laughs> one of the things about Ketzalith, while we were writing it, there was a, there's a scene that's still in the book that is uh, kind of got truncated. Um, where they're getting on a riverboat. And at the time, Ketzalith was among the missing. And there was a... Originally, it was a fairly long, complex thing. Ketzalith eventually showed back up, and there was a lot of conflict. But they actually... Uh, Jasmine actually got on the riverboat, uh, not entirely voluntarily, uh, and and sort of left without Ketzalith. And I said, there's no way that that, that character would do that. It was completely uh, false to the character. And, and Casey and I went back and forth about it a little bit. Not a lot. I mean, it wasn't like an argument or anything. I said, um, uh, Casey, is it okay if I mention your daughter's name? Uh, Casey? Um, I, sure. Well, anyway, yeah, I said, I said uh, Ketzalith is your daughter. And and she went, oh, you know, Casey would never leave her daughters behind, ever. Um, under any circumstances whatsoever, there is nothing that you could get her to do to do that. And in the same way, Jasmine could not leave Ketzalith behind because Ketzalith was, uh, to the extent that Jasmine is a uh, is a uh, an alter ego for Casey, and, and I'm not saying that, that Casey is is crazy or anything, it's, you know, completely ruled by instinct. But to the extent that that character is an alter ego, Ketzalith was an alter ego for her daughter. And that's certainly how she wrote her. Um, and so when that character was in some way forced, in some way persuaded to get onto the riverboat and leave without Ketzalith, I went, nah, she'd never do it. It, 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 it would be an impossible decision for her. Um, so we rewrote it so that Ketzalith shows up before they have to get on the riverboat. And, uh, there is an initial argument, and it sort of gets muted when people show back up. Um, yes. But what I I, I had said that then we were we were at a different Liberty Con, and uh, your daughter, uh, somebody said something, and she made a particular face, and I tried to get her to do it again. I, it was when we were eating pizza in that that storm, and I tried to get her to do it again yeah. because when she made that face, she looked exactly like the freaking dragon. And that's why I was trying to get her to do it. Because she had, when her face goes up in a V, she looks like a freaking dragon. Um, <laughs> so when I said, way. because that argument was later uh, about leaving Ketzalith behind, when I said that, that Jasmine couldn't do it because that is your daughter, you know, and I, I said the name, um, what I meant was you literally wrote her as her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, and you were right, and that was and and the the scene works much better, you know the the way that it that it finally ended up being, um, you know coming coming together. So, um, I mean that's what that's been one of the things that's been really valuable for me about this whole process is you know the opportunity to not just bounce ideas off of Chris, who you know he and I have been 
doing that basically since the beginning of our friendship several years ago. Um, but to have John's perspective as, um, you know, a, a more experienced author who, you know, has, has gone through these, these drafting and editing iterations and, um, and can kind of see the currents moving within the story, um, before, you know, before I'm able to, just cause I, I just, I don't have that experience yet. Um, that's Chris and I have, have talked about that before, how we've both found that super valuable. Oh yeah. Well, definitely. You're welcome. Yeah. Thanks. Thank man. you. So they, they t- let's talk about that cool river boat a little bit. Cause they, um, let's see, basically the quest goes from what Wyoming to Kansas city to Pittsburgh. And this riverboat's on the Ohio then, right? It's the long, tall, the long, tall Sally. I want to say the river's on the Missouri. Oh, okay. And that's how they get there. Yeah, they board just outside of Kansas City. And, um, and, uh, and then they're, um, they, you know, eventually get onto the Ohio River. Um, but, um, yeah, I'd, have, I'd actually have to look at our map to be sure. Well, Jasmine's uh, uncle is in Pittsburgh. So, yeah. Anyway, go ahead. I was going to say that that riverboat actually um, makes another appearance in um, the Give Me Liberty Con anthology, um, which I don't know when that's scheduled to come out, but um, that's the uh, the anthology from Bain where um, um, in tribute to Uncle Timmy, who's um, the founder of Liberty Con. And uh, um, Chris and I uh, were invited to participate in that super cool project. Um, and I was at Liberty Con with actually Tony Weisskopf and I was like, Tony, I, you know, what should I do for this? And she goes, why don't you give us a gunpowder story? And I was like, oh my gosh, I could tell the story of how Jack, the, the, you know, pirate king, um, ends up on this riverboat. And so fans of, uh, of that whole sequence, uh, should look for that anthology coming sometime in the future. <laughs> from Bane. Um. <laughs> so. One aspect. Yep, like yep, yep, yeah, it's July. It's July 2020. I, I was really pleased uh, to see more of of, of Jack and uh, and his true love. Um, Not at all. I have a uh, a quote that I use all the time when I'm doing panels about characters and about and about writing, which I stole from Hemingway, which is uh, good writers create, great writers steal. And when people are thinking about writing. Uh, when you're trying to figure out characters, it is totally okay to take people that you know and file serial numbers off if they're good characters. Um, everyone has done that. Uh, every writer in history has done that. It is, uh, it, it is not anything which is, uh, uh, unacceptable to do. Uh, in fact, it's the way that you get good characters because the best characters are characters from real life. Um, and and so in the the riverboat, the, the guy who owns the riverboat is uh, I think he's only referred to as Jack, but uh, he is somebody that is also part of this group that we hang out with. Um, and he has been uh, the the term is is not redshirted. In this case, he was redshirted, um, giving something away, but. Uh, Sorry, giving away boy. a big no he was um, but uh, the term is tuckerization 
and where you take somebody and you only vaguely file the serial numbers off and use them as a character. Um, and he has been Tuckerized in, I think, as many Bane books as Joe Buckley. Um, but he is not always <laughs> redshirted. Like, Joe Buckley is always redshirted. Um. <laughs> well, there's a reason for that. He's yeah, but at this he's point, quite it's just, literally it's larger just, than life. <laughs> oh, you're talking oh, about Jack? Yeah, Jack. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah Jack. Is, <laughs> it takes a lot to kill Jack. <laughs> he is both. He is both meta- metaphorically and literally larger than life. Um, yep. <laughs> and if you actually go into his background and like Jack's memoir. Um, Jack's memoir from like when he was 17 until he was 22 would fill a couple of volumes. Uh, <laughs> oh, either way. Yeah, it would be sure. the Hunter S. Thompson's mixed with, uh, I don't know, who's like Ragnar the Magnificent, Eric the Red or something, and Hunter S. Thompson combined into one would be Jack's. Yeah, he is somebody that you guys had to tone down to make believable for the mm-hmm. book. Can you just tell us who this guy is so that you don't have to talk around it? He probably doesn't care, right? Who, Jack Clemens? Oh no, he doesn't care. Jack, His name's Jack care. Clemens. He's currently a uh, he's currently a senior manager in uh, social media for one of the largest uh, for a, a big uh, marketing firm that focuses on the gun industry. Um, so he does social media for like uh, large gun companies. Um, and you know, I can't really get into which contracts they have but you know they they have contracts with large gun companies and so he's the he's the social media his team is the social media voice for gun manufacturers and and so basically he has a dream job he gets guns for free just for talking about shit and uh, a while back there was this whole thing about uh he was kind of head over heels for a particular pop singer who shall who shall remain nameless in this podcast you shall remain nameless. <laughs> and uh, the character in the the character that is his unrequited love in the uh, on the on the the riverboat is in no way, shape, or form has anything whatsoever to do with the modern, extremely skinny female pop. Um, Correct. <laughs> he tends to go through a bunch of boyfriend's love. Who goes through a bunch of boyfriend's love? <laughs> This is the thing that I like about fiction, right? Is that you can make the stories come out the way they should come out. And, and, and this feels right because this is how it should be. This is how it is in some other universe where there are, in fact, giant ants eating our electricity. I, I, I'm very happy with that. Tony, did you ever hear the joke about what would happen if they actually got together? Uh, because the, the whole deal is she gets involved with a guy, she breaks up with him, she writes an album about the relationship. And that album right. would be called Crushed. <laughs> that album would be called Crushed. Jack is a big man. <laughs> a Jack is a huge guy. <laughs> so th- th- there's a certain amount of we had so much fun working on this book that we we hope that the that some of that fun 
spills over and and the readers get that sense of it um it it, it, it it's it's such a fun world and the, the characters are so meaty and um and and so relatable um that uh, we, you know, we we hope that everybody else gets out of it what what, what we what we put into it um so um uh, Chris, what, what was your experience like working with these two? Oh man, I, you know, equal parts uh, terrifying, frustrating, and, and amazing at the same time, um, <laughs> and not frustrating in terms of like you know butting my head against a wall because of this. It was more along the lines of three creative people really wanting to push an idea that they like. You know, it, it's like oh man, I think this would be really really great, and then having two other people go. Yeah, but let's do this. It's like I, but I'm stubborn. I don't want to change my idea. And then I see what's on the page, and I go, "Oh God, that is better." So you know, that's where the frustration on my part came from. Uh, just because it was like I, I'm, I'm working with two people who are very, very good at this, and uh, <laughs> watching watching it take place was the amazing part. Because I, I honestly think after looking at all this as it was all kind of coming together and Casey, I know I'd said to Casey a couple of times, it was just, Oh my God, you know, how are we going to pull this off? And, uh, looking at the finished product, like, Oh my God, we pulled this off. (laughs) I I think this is a a very cohesive narrative where, you know, when you look at it in terms of editing and you're looking at certain pieces here and there at the same time, it's like, man, that fit. I don't know if that fits. And then you go back and look at the whole and you go, that fits. (laughs) Yeah. This is actually pretty cool, you know? And I also get to, I, I, I give John a hard time because, you know, way, way back when, I years ago, I said, hey, John, you know, do you ever think about writing a Western? He goes, oh, man, I would never do that. I would never write a Western. It would be like ghost on horses. And so for the last couple of years, never I've been to, to give the I would never write a Western. I would never write a Western. <laughs> exactly. I, I think that I guaranteed I would never do. I would never write a Western. I would never write a steampunk novel. And by God, as God is my witness, I swear to God, I will never, ever, ever write in the zombie universe. <laughs> oh, oh, and I will never do porn. Too late, too late. I get to thumb my nose at John every time I see him and go, neener, 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 made you write a bet. <laughs> <laughs> So we should we should say that yes, you know, for people who are fans of westerns and and fans of Louis L'Amour, you will find things to like in this book. Um, there is very much uh, a a Seven Samurai uh, uh, um, sort of feel to this. Growing up, I read Louis L'Amour over and over and over again. Um, so yeah. from the point of view of my input, there's a very Louis L'Amour feel to it because it's the only western that I only western that I know. Well, one of the um, the things that makes it work, it seems to me, is that you come up with some really good bad guys, and I think you should mention them uh, before we uh, before we close out. Especially when well, you have the cultists, you have Ariel, who's who was one, and uh, we talked about them a little bit. Maybe talk about that that drug sort of experience they have with the Gants. Um, also, we have uh, the the execrable <laughs> Lord Schilling. Uh, who uh, Jasmine's basically escaped from, who's treated Jasmine abominably, abominably. I'm, I'm, I'm going to uh, say this. Uh, he is absolutely in no way whatsoever based on my former boss. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you clarified that, Chris. Thank you. Well, he's trying to create like a medieval kingdom in, uh, in, in the middle of the 
I guess the the Midwest, the West. Talk about the bad guys, in other words, a little bit. You know, whenever you're going to have a, a breakdown in society, you're going to have obviously a power vacuum, right? And so, um, it, it seemed logical to us that you would have these sort of petty warlords that would, um, that would sort of rise to fill that vacuum, at least in their in their local area. Um, and so we 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 kind of just picked one, and um, his character uh, kind of came to light. Um, or kind of, we, we sort of developed his character in conjunction with Jasmine's character. Um, and one of the things that, and John specifically gave me the job of talking about this and defending this if it ever comes up. So I'll address it here. Um, one of the things in Jasmine's background is that she's a sexual assault survivor. Um, and initially, you know, when we were, when we were going through this, John was like, mm, Casey, that is, that's dangerous waters right there. Um, you know, because the, um, there's, there's a lot of, with like the Me Too movement and everything like that, nobody wants to be accused of creating characters that are only interesting because they're victims. My counter to him is that Jasmine isn't a victim. Jasmine is a survivor. And that is a, that is, there, that is a, um, that is a, a nuanced difference. Um, distinction, but, but it's, it's real and it exists. And it's important that sexual assault survivors, um, you know, people who've been through that, that traumatic experience, it's important to me that they see themselves represented in fiction, you know, just, just as everyone needs to be represented in fiction. Um, and, um, and so we worked very hard to present Jasmine as someone to, who had this horrible thing happen to her in her backstory, and yet it didn't define her. It became just something that had happened to her, something that, you know, that she drew strength from by saying, I have survived that. I can survive this. And and it made her a stronger person, a stronger character, and, and someone with a stronger will to move forward and to continue surviving. Um, so in order, to, in order to create that background for her, we had to, you know, have, have someone who... Um, would would do that and so kind of the first <laughs> the first horrible thing that we that that we knew about this baron Schilling was that he was a rapist um which is a pretty horrible thing um and uh i had to say his if character kind of grew out of that um yeah i was gonna say Go. he's not He's not your, your, your standard jump out of the shadows, grab you, tear your clothes off kind of rapist. He's a much more, uh, oh, he's a trouble. Which is not the standard, by the sinister. way. Yeah. yeah. He's, he, uh, in his mind. I mean, he's, he's, he's subtle, he's manipulative, and he, in his mind, he's doing, he's doing the right thing. But what he is, is, is someone who is grooming, you know, younger girls until they become either of age or we kind of imply that they weren't. Um, to be his, his well, we uh, said she was fourteen, his, his so. whatever. That's true. That's yeah, true. yeah he, he, he's an he's an right. abuser of his power. I, absolutely correct. And that's and that's where right. And so so that's where we we started from with his with his character. And then we kind of went, okay, so here's the situation that we have a person who is an abuser of power, and what do they do with that? How would they create this? And you know the. From there, we came up with this concept of someone who wants to be an autocrat. You know, he he wants to uh, he wants to be able to believe in the divine right of 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 his divine right to rule, right? So, 
Um, so a lot of the world building and the color of, you know, his, what his place looked like, what his moves are as far as, you know, trying to monopolize the rail, you know, what remains of the rail system in that part of the country, um, how he's he going to interact with these other, um, petty kingdoms and, and warlordships that sort of spring up in the absence of, of, um, legitimate power. You know, all of those interactions were based on that idea of him as he is someone who is an abuser of power and is a power addict and wants more and, and will never not want more. And some very nice resonant re- resonance there with the with the ants who are also uh, all about power, right? You know, they're they're, they're literal power um, devourers, um, and 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 you also get to set up um, uh, contrasts between pe- between people who don't take advantage of the situation to abuse the power, um, and that's nice too. One one of the things I really liked about the feel of the of the book is that it's a really hard world. It's really tough. And yet there are people that are acting with honor in it, even in, uh, in such a tough world. Right. Yeah, that was important oh, yeah. to us. Um, well, and because the... neither go ahead, John. No, you go. Go. Oh, I was, I was going to say, you know, neither, neither John nor Chris nor I, is a real big fan of, of like the whole sort of grim, dark, everything's going to shit concept. You know, I mean, you saw it in, in John's Black Tide Rising series as well that, you know, eventually we're going to rebuild and eventually things are going to get better. Humans are just too damn resilient not for that not to be the case. Um, we're either going to be wiped out completely or we're going to rebuild. You know, it's, there's, it, it's just a matter of how long is it going to take. And so, um, we, you know, all three of us have done difficult things in this life and been through difficult things, you know, like everyone. Um, and I think, I think one of the, one of the outlooks that we shared that made this partnership possible is that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Um, but there's always, there's always hope and there's always a reason to do the right thing. Um, the nature of yeah, this book, definitely. I really did not want it to be horrendously dystopic. Um, I could have included a lot more dystopia to it, uh, because that environment would tend to be fairly dystopic. Uh, but that was not the feel that I wanted to go for. I wanted to go for a feel that was, uh, more positive. Uh, because even in that situation, there would be people who would be working very hard to try to restore a non-dystopic future. Uh, right. And there'd be a lot of people who would be trying to make things worse, uh, like the Baron. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, but just because there is evil doesn't mean that evil automatically triumphs. Uh, in fact, the, the history of humanity has been that evil has become less and less. Uh, now, we are, we went from about 1.5 billion people in the Iron Age to 2.5 billion people in the Industrial Age to 8 billion people. So it's really easy to look at the world and go, the world is so bad, um, in the current situation. And yet, if you look at the world objectively and compare it to history, 
Uh, what you're seeing is a much smaller amount of evil, but 8 billion people were. So we probably got like, we've got the equivalent of the population of the Iron Age that is really, really horrible people. Okay. You know, it's like if everybody in the Iron Age were really, really utterly horrible people, we still got that. We've got eh, 750 million people that are really, really horrible among 8 billion. Yeah. Um, so it, we outnumber them. <laughs> the world has just gotten a lot better and human beings have become better people. Um, it, in, you know, it, it's hard for us to see that. But if you look at uh, South America in the 1950s versus South America today, South America today looks terrible. It looks god-awful. Compare it to the 1950s. Compare it to the 1800s. It's so much better today, um, just in terms of people being more decent to each other than they used to be. Look at Africa uh, in the pre-colonial period. Uh, look at it in the colonial period. Look at it present day. Africa looks like a basket case. Look in the 1800s what Africa looked like. Oh, my God. Uh, the advancement has just been amazing. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, calling attention to the, the behaviors that, that I, I think that's a useful thing that literature can, can do um, to, to give us those heroes, you know, to, to help us. Uh, go through these incredibly difficult times. Hopefully not as difficult as giant ants coming through interstellar rifts. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. There are uh, days. That's that's for hey, we have a large hadron collider underneath Texas and rednecks all over the place. So don't don't rule it out. I'm just saying. Do we want to do we want to talk about anything else uh, about the book or uh, plans for the future? Well, we have um, we have two more books. Planned right now. Um, the uh, the one thing that we didn't mention was, um, and I don't know if we want to get into this, but um, you know we have this sort of um, light versus or li a light in the darkness or a flame in the darkness theme kind of running through everything, um, where you know if that flame represents the hope of you know the hope of a the hope of freedom, the hope of a world where you know it's you don't have the autocrats running around and, and creating their petty kingdoms, but where you actually have a functional society where the rule of law is paramount. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, everyone is free and gets a fair shake. Um, we didn't really go into that. I don't know if you guys want to, but that's, that's kind of where like our titles come from, you know, with gunpowder and embers. It's um, the, if the flame is that hope, that hope is, maybe buried and maybe smoldering, but it's still there. It's not out. And, you know, when it meets gunpowder, a, um, a conflagration, uh, will result. So. Actually, there's one other thing I want to mention too. Um, the, uh, the, con the conflagration and, and the embers, you, you see that on the cover as well. Um, and, uh, we have on the cover, um, representations of three of the characters. And I just want to say that all three of these are going to be really easy to cosplay. So I would love to see them at a convention. <laughs> easy cosplay I would be, it's easy cosplay I may or may not have completely picked Jasmine's outfits based on what would be comfortable to wear in Atlanta in the summertime. 
that 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 works for me i think corsets are lovely the vest for the uh, uh for the <laughs> for the wind fist also looks great um and chuck is a cowboy so <laughs> love to see all of these uh, out there who who was the cover artist tony the cover artist was dave seeley did That's a fantastic a job yeah and it is i would be remiss if i didn't yeah it's so beautiful i'm so so flattered and, and pleased and and i'm gonna need to to figure out how to hang it up on my wall somehow <laughs> when i get when i finally stop moving around the world <laughs> well I'll, i'm gonna be the dead gunslinger <laughs> I could just lay there. All right. So, uh, dog tags hanging out of your coat. That would be amazing. That's right. And little key. Here you go, Chuck. Do something. Or Uncle Ben. Yeah. Like, like the people who run up and like pretend to be Batman's parents and just lie down dead in front of every Batman cosplayer. That would be amazing. Yeah. Well, it's an incredibly fun book and, uh, it, it really, uh, it, Whatever, however this alchemy came together, it works. The book is Gunpowder and Embers by John Ringo, Casey Ezel, and Christopher L. Smith, and it is at booksellers everywhere. Um, thank you, John, Casey, Christopher, and um, Tony Weisskopf for being with us and talking about Gunpowder and Embers. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for having us. That was part two of a two-part interview. Part one is available on last week's podcast. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Epilogue The desert sun beat down on Grand Inquisitor Armand as he sat in a wicker chair along the road between the capital and the Inquisitor's dome, waiting patiently. He'd come alone, without even a slave to hold his umbrella or wave a cooling fan. Regardless of the season, even the busiest caravans tried not to travel during the hottest part of the day here, but there was a line of men on horseback making their way from the capital. If Ormand hadn't already been certain who it would be before, the silver armor gleaming in the sun confirmed it. 
From this distance, he couldn't make out too many details, but the riders had far superior vision. Some said, better than a hawk, so they certainly recognized Armand. The one in the lead broke off and galloped in his direction, his warhorse kicking up a furious plume of fine white dust in its wake. Armand remained in his chair, comfortable and unafraid, as Lord Protector Devadas approached. For a moment, he was concerned that the protector was just going to run him down, but the horse reared as Devadas pulled on its reins and forced it to stop only a few feet away, close enough to throw sand on his robes. Speak, Inquisitor. Let me hear your voice. Of course, just because he was wearing the Grand Inquisitor's mask didn't make him the Grand Inquisitor. It was wise to be suspicious. Hello, Devadas. Always a pleasure to see you again. Armand. He dipped his head just a bit. There's no pleasure here. Could it be? It appears that all of the stalwart protectors of the law are leaving the capital. We are. The judges have lost confidence in the loyalty of my order. A shame. I believe you had something to do with that. Armand waved one hand dismissively. My obligation is to protect the governing caste from all who would do it harm. The judges judge. I only provide facts. And the evidence suggested that some protectors have violated their oaths. If it is any consolation, I believe the vast majority of you to be men of impeccable integrity. My recommendation said as much. Yet the capital's faith in your order was still shaken. I'm going to personally see to it that faith is restored. By killing the traitor Ashok, I take it. I've sworn that I won't return to this city until he's dead. Every last one of us will be pursuing him to the ends of the world. Devadas glanced around the open desert suspiciously. What a strange turn of events. You just happen to be waiting here as we pass, and you appear to be all alone. A happy coincidence, Oman said as he looked across the vast expanse of nothing. As if men of his importance often sat alone in the desert for no reason. Yes, I am all by myself. Say what you will, there are no ears here except for ours. Then you received my message. Speaking of ears, how is your man? Not quite so useful to me, horribly disfigured. Devadas pushed on. I've been investigating you, Armand Vaucan, and what I found is most curious. Clandestine meetings with high-status members of every house. Bribing archivists to tamper with the histories and conspiracies to manipulate judges. You've been a busy man, pulling all those strings. I must admit, I do enjoy politics. You must, since you're planning on overthrowing the government. Oh? That was why he'd placed himself here. Armand had suspected Devadas was aware of some of his crimes, but he was unsure of which. If Devadas had known that he was behind Ashok's escape, then he probably wouldn't have stopped the horse from trampling him. You've mocked the law enough. On the contrary, 
I'm the law's fondest supporter. Everything I've done has been to strengthen the capital's control of the houses. We both know they have too much autonomy, and such freedom causes disorder. It was a pointless raid that cost your father his ancestor blade, and thus cost you your birthright. I would stop such frivolity. So you've distorted history to promote genocide. Then non-people are a stumbling block to progress. Religious fanaticism is an infection that can never be cured, and it lives on in the tissues of the castless. Until they are cut away, the infection will continue to spread. You've known this to be true, since I told you where to find your old master, Ratul. If this necessary cleansing has the added benefit of making the houses more reliant upon the capital, where is the harm? What's to keep me from taking your head right now? Devadas put one hand on the hilt of his sword. Oman smiled beneath his mask. As usual, a warlike man underestimated his abilities. Just because he was primarily skilled in rhetoric and manipulation, those quick to violence never realized Oman could crush them like a bug if he felt like it. Luckily, such direct action was seldom necessary. Calm yourself, Devadas. He'd been observing these protectors for years, and he knew that Devadas had too much pride in his own achievements to ever be completely devoted to the letter of the law, and thus could be manipulated. It would be a shame if something horrible was to happen to that librarian of yours. The young man's face darkened. Your clumsy attempt at silencing the archivist was embarrassing. Don't waste my time pretending that Rada is just another witness. From the pained expression you're wearing, you thought your relationship was a secret. I truly do see everything that happens in this city. You actually love her. I always thought you were too ambitious for such entanglements. My congratulations. She will make a fine bride once you both decide to end your obligations to your orders but I tire of dancing around the issue. I know where you've hidden her. If I die, she dies. If my dark counsels are exposed, then she dies. Simple. Perhaps it wasn't that simple, because Devadas drew his sword. Wait, Oman ordered with such force that ripples traveled outward through the sand. Devadas's horse shifted nervously as the ground beneath its hooves moved. Omand held up one fist, indicating he had a chunk of black steel clenched in it, and wouldn't hesitate to use it. I was a witch hunter long before I was a bureaucrat. If you harm her, nothing in the world will stop me from taking your head. Omand had misjudged the man, and thus picked the incorrect move for this game. But he still had other plays. Any action against me will be seen by the judges as proof that the order has been corrupted. The protectors will be ruined, the members purged, and you will be remembered as the commander who caused it all. Surprisingly, Devadas laughed. You truly are the spider like they say.
Are people really stupid enough to blunder into your web so easily? Normally, yes. Armand tilted his mask back and studied the protector with new appreciation. He was smarter than he acted. I sense you have a different proposal. I do. Devadas pointed his sword at Amand's chest. I suspect you care nothing about the castless and their false gods, except that they're an excuse for you to consolidate power. You want to return to the Age of Kings, in all but name. In those days, the tribes united to push the demons into the sea. Now you want to do the same thing to the castless. The events that bring this about are irrelevant, as long as, when it is over, you're in control. You are more politically astute than I gave you credit for, Devadas. It is truly a shame about your house dying. You would have made a fine Thakur. I'll make a better king. For once, Armand was the one taken by surprise. I believe you overestimate my goals. Call the office by whatever title you want. Governor, minister, I don't care. But you must realize you'll need one. Since I've been investigating your sabotage of the archives, it's given me the opportunity to read up on how things worked in the prior age. There was usually one man in control, sometimes a figurehead, sometimes not. But if you intend to consolidate power, there must be a single ruler for the people to look to. It can't be you. No one will follow a man who has never shown his face. The first king was chosen because he was the hero who beat the demons. You have found your threat. Now you need your hero. An interesting proposal. I will take your offer to the councils. No, you won't. We both know who runs the web, and I'm sure you've got no shortage of conspirators who each think they're the best man for the job, ready to put a knife in my back. You want the great houses to bow to the capital, but whichever of your pet judges you choose to be your figurehead has to come from one of those houses, leaving the rest jealous or suspicious. I have no house. Armand was impressed by the logic. Hmm. Your only loyalty has been to an order which has been fair and equal to all. You're born of the first caste, but without any of their usual entanglements that entails. The warrior caste would have far more respect for you than any man of the courts. An argument could be made that you would be the best choice. He was practical enough to admit that Devadas also had a charismatic charm, and his rugged looks would do well on posters and coins. Though I know that's where the power truly lies, I've got no stomach for managing bureaucracies. That's for men like you, Armand. I was born to rule, and that's what I intend to do. Very well. This had been a more fruitful meeting than Armand had hoped for. But what about the destruction of the castless? Rebellion is coming to all of the houses one way or the other. It's been in the air too long, and recent events will only make it worse. I don't believe in the old foolish superstitions about where the castless come from, but I think exterminating all of them is unnecessary brutality. Let the rebellious hang, and the rest will fall back into line as usual. 
It turned out they were both ambitious. But Devadas still had some measure of humanity. Luckily, Omand didn't. Of course. As long as I reach my political goals, I don't care what happens to them. I'm happy to let the obedient castless live, he lied. I intend to crush the rebellion, and when I return, triumphant, we can either be allies or enemies. You will have plenty of time to prepare your people to welcome me back. I believe this may be a long campaign. With Ashok joining the rebels, for once they're actually a threat. Does he know of my part? Impossible. Only a loyal few knew of Ashok's fabricated orders, and none of them would have talked. So, you believe he has willingly joined the rebels? Ashok was the closest friend I've ever had. I know him better than anyone. There's never been a man born with a greater single-minded devotion to the law. They say he's without compassion or mercy. But they don't realize Ashok believed he was doing lawbreakers a favor by ending them. People think it was because of the sword. But that's not what made Ashok that way. It was his belief, his certainty. He just is. So while he was rotting in that cell, pondering on all those who wronged him, if he turned that devotion to something else, some other task, he'd be just as certain, just as merciless. Only now there would be no law to restrain him. Devadas trailed off, then shook his head sadly. Now, Inquisitor, my order isn't just searching for him as some political show to satisfy the judges. I have to kill my brother, because I know that Ashok is the most dangerous man alive. For the first time, Armand wondered if he might have inadvertently unleashed something terrible into the world. This has been an Audible Studios production of Son of the Black Sword, Saga of the Forgotten Warrior, Book One. Written by Larry Correa. Performed by Tim Gerard Reynolds. Producer, Mike Charzuk. Copyright 2015 by Larry Correa. Production copyright 2015 by Audible, Inc. Audible Studios is a division of Audible, Inc. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Jakowitz. And the graffiti light remains of an orange-blue bruise of a sky that's protected us from yet another kinetic stripe from those nasty aliens pretending to be asteroids. Thanks, Sky. Plus praise, plaudits, and gratitude to Bain publisher Tony Weiskopf and to John Ringo, Casey Ezel, and Christopher L. Smith, authors of Gunpowder and Embers. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs> <laughs>